Hello and welcome to the first 200 Years of Allens, the podcast series. I'm Talia Rodriguez. And I'm Melissa Camp. This year, Allens turns 200. Having begun in 1822 as a one-person legal practice in a modest cottage in Elizabeth Street in Sydney, Allens is now Australia's oldest law firm. Allens has grown with Australia, advising on many of the landmark economic and social events that have shaped the nation. During this series, we'll be reliving some of the highlights from the first 200 years of Allens and exploring their impact on our lives today. So the Portnoy's complaint case was this gorgeous alliance between radical campaigners and an establishment law firm with an establishment client and a determination to free the system. This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to the elders, past and present. Their systems of law and knowledge long predated that of the modern lawyers who arrived in Australia. And they hold the memories, the traditions, the cultures and the hopes of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. We hope you enjoy our stories. Hello, I'm Jackie French. As an author who has written over 200 books, it gives me great pleasure to share with you the story of how harsh literary censorship ended in Australia. Today, it's easy to take for granted our ability to read any book we choose. But it wasn't always this way. Well, today has been Police Crackdown Day on the book Portnoy's Complaint in Sydney. Police have raided at least three bookshops, including Angus and Robertson. Until the 1970s, Australia was governed by some of the most severe censorship regulations in the Western world. The Australian government used the Trade and Customs Act 1901 to prohibit the importation of literary works deemed obscene, indecent or seditious. Between the 1920s and 1970s, more than 15,000 books were banned from publication in Australia, including The Catcher in the Rye, Ulysses, and even Ian Fleming's James Bond novel, The Spy Who Loved Me. Australians had been growing uneasy with the government's paternalism, but it was the publication of Philip Roth's best-selling novel, Portnoy's Complaint, in 1969, that proved to be the tipping point for fundamental change, the harsh censorship in Australia. Portnoy's Complaint is the salacious story of a young lawyer and his confessions to a psychiatrist, mostly in the form of his erotic experiences, real and imagined. It is because of that content the Australian government considered the novel too explicit for Australian readers and prohibited its importation. Determined to take a stand and get Australian readers make up their own minds, Penguin Books Australia, in conjunction with Angus and Robertson, secretly printed and distributed 75,000 copies of the book, circumventing the customs ban. It was an immediate success, with readers queuing outside bookstores when it went on sale on 31st of August, 1970. Are you selling the book yourself? I am. What's the reaction so far? Tremendous interest from the public. Uh, We've been selling continuously all morning, and it looks as if the addition of 75,000 will not satisfy the demand of the Australian public for this book. But it wasn't long before the authorities discovered what was happening and police began to seize prohibited books. My grandmother, Joan Broomhall, was the manager of the Pioneer Bookshop in Perth. She was about 56 going on 57. She was a very quiet person, softly spoken. 
September the 8th, the Daily News, the afternoon newspaper in Perth, published a photo of Grandma, showed her selling the book, and she said she'd, you know, sold out all her copies, but she'd be getting more. September the 11th, the cops arrived and Grandma was charged with selling an obscene publication. Grandma told me that she had, in anticipation of a visit from the police, stashed lots of copies of the book in the ceiling on the rafters. The other hilarious thing about it was that it was probably the Pioneer Bookshop's best-selling title ever. And in fact, I'm told that it gave them enough money to replace the carpet, which they were very pleased about. During this ban, the book was in such demand that people were beginning to secretly print and distribute their own bootleg copies. 78-year-old Andrew Richards from Melbourne owns one of these very rare copies. There's no cardboard cover on it. It's a light green piece of A4 paper, I presume, and it's got Portnoy's complaint on the outside of it. I think it would have taken several hours to produce each copy. You'd have to collate it and then staple it and then put the cover on and so on. It would have been very expensive because photocopying machines then were very expensive and not everyone had them. They were only in big companies, big firms of solicitors, etc. Andrew was given his copy of the bootleg edition by an old friend, Mieta O'Donnell, who was working for a federal MP. She came to me and said, look, I've got this book and it's highly illegal. I don't think I should have it in case I get caught and I'm working for an ALP candidate. I said, well, yeah, it's fine. She gave it to me and uh, I read it at the time and handed it around to a few other people. And uh, I think what was interesting, what immediately struck me was just the amount of time and effort that must have gone into making just one copy. Meanwhile, as copies of the book continued to circulate in secrecy across Australia, attempts to prosecute the illegal sales were being made state by state. Aaron, Aaron and Hemsley, now known as Aaron's, led the defence for their long-standing client, Angus and Robertson. So the Portnoy's complaint case was this gorgeous alliance between radical campaigners and an establishment law firm with an establishment client and a determination to free the system. It was an alliance between the street and the highest levels of the legal world to get this done. That's journalist and author David Marr. He was working at Allen, Allen and Hemsley at the time. My role in all this was to carry books and herd witnesses. I was a 24-year-old final year law student the partner at Allen's who had courage of the matter was Hugh Jamison, and he was both personally and professionally committed to winning this case. And he had the contacts which enabled him to gather this collection of witnesses to the merit of the book. And he brought from academia, from the world of writing, from the world of publishing, a group of witnesses. Now, their job was to argue that Portnoy's complaint, his grubby, funny, hilarious book, had merit, had literary merit. And day after day, the prosecution, led by Jack Kenny, this tall, Irish-Australian, grim prosecutor with 
I remember even after all these years, the longest index finger I've ever seen in the world. And he would point his index finger at these witnesses and say, what is literary merit? No, that's not merit. What is literary merit? And we had the future governor general, Bill Dean, as counsel for our side. And he was magnificent. He was splendid and unflinchable about not just the literary, but the moral quality of this book. David remembers the courtroom scenes well. You know, the prosecution had been clamorously depicting a future where children's lives would be ruined by picking up a copy of Portnoy's complaints and making much of this completely false claim by the police that Angus and Robertson had sold a copy of Portnoy's complaint to a schoolgirl in uniform. On the day they claimed that sale was made, it was in the middle of the school holidays. It was false. And Judge Goran just dismissed that evidence. By that time, of course, it had been mocked by Bill Dean. It had been insisted on by Jack Kenny, his finger going out about the horrors of school children buying this kind of awful, you know, debasing. David also remembers the moment Australian novelist Patrick White was called to the stand. Patrick White had not yet won the Nobel Prize. That was about 18 months or two years away. But he was the towering figure of Australian literature. But the other thing was that he was such an establishment figure, you know. And he turned up to court in this three-piece Prince of Wales check suit. He was this tall, old, haughty figure, Australia's most famous writer. And Jack Kenny set out to embarrass him. It was so wonderful. He misjudged, you know. He thought that this figure from the highest realms of Australian society, highest realms of Australian literature, would be coy. On the contrary, when Jack Kenny read filthy passages from the book and then asked Patrick White questions and things, Patrick would say, what part are you concentrating on? Where she shits on the table? Is that where you're talking? And unflappable. He made Patrick White read out really, really shabby passages from the book, and Patrick was completely unfazed. After two separate trials in New South Wales, neither jury was able to reach a verdict. It was not an acquittal, but we weren't convicted, and that was a win. And of course, if you can't ban a book in New South Wales in those days, you couldn't really ban it in Australia. Many considered the book obscene, yet its literary merit could not be ignored. A series of similar giggle trials in different states drew further attention to Australia's draconian sensitive goals and ultimately created powerful momentum for change. In 1971, the Australian government was left with little choice but to remove Portnoy's complaint from the list of banned books representing a marked relaxation of Australia's attitude to censorship. For us, censorship is something like out of science fiction, but really the years where we had censorship in this country were years when government treated people effectively like children and sought to mould them and shape them into a public that it wanted them to be, which usually meant white, straight, Christian, and you know, wholly venerating the Queen and the Empire. That's Patrick Mullins, author of the book, The Trials of Portnoy. Until the time that literary censorship was effectively abolished, Australia was kind of this sheltered nation where government could 
stop books coming into the country, could stop books being published in the country, and could stop even newspapers reporting things in the country. And one of the effects of that was to cut Australia off from all the big debates that were happening overseas. So things like gay rights, racial equality, discrimination against women. The abolition of literary censorship, however, meant that we could suddenly partake in those debates. We could read books that were being produced overseas that were exploring sexuality. We could read books that were exploring ideas of racial difference and racial equality. We could read books that talked about things like abortion, that talked about gender relations and marriage. We could also have thereby a greater idea of what it was possible to do and to be as a people. This is the thing to keep in mind. Writers were thrown in jail. Booksellers were charged and fined. Publishers were fined. Literary censorship was not some kind of benign thing that just stopped you reading smutty books. It was something that was actually really, really quite heavy-handed and in some ways all-pervasive in this country. Hawthorne's Complaint was published in Australia in my final year of school. I began my life as an adult writer, never having to worry about how much can we get away with. I am the first generation of Australian writers with no bars about their creativity. I have the freedom to write and to read without feeling a censor who may not share my values is peering over my shoulder. I'm Jackie French. Thank you for joining me to relive this highlight from the first 200 years of Adams. I think you'd agree it certainly has had a lasting impact. Tune in to 200 Years of Adams for more moments that have shaped our nation, economy and society.